All right, everyone. It is Tuesday, December 20th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Moshe Wanunu. And I am Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, you mentioned yesterday that uh, the kids are sick. How are they doing today? Okay, so my daughter is actually doing a little bit better. She was tested for COVID, flu, and RSV, which are the triple-demic that's going around right now. And luckily, knock on wood, she does not have either of them. She tested negative. But it's a reminder, there's a ton of other stuff going around. So she just has a different upper respiratory virus. And we are doing our darndest uh, to make sure that the little guy stays away from her and doesn't catch whatever she has. Yeah, and actually, we're going to get into that a bit in this podcast today, uh, the, the shortage in Motrin, amoxicillin, et cetera that many parents are writing in about. Most just pile it on to what's already been a really uh, tough couple years for parents. But uh, we'll get to that a little bit later. For now, though, so many headlines, especially given that we are just five days from Christmas. Let's start with the January 6th committee recommending criminal charges against former President Trump. We'll tell you what that means. The results from Elon Musk's Twitter poll are in. And the majority of Twitter voters want him to step down as CEO. But will he? We're also following the latest in the immigration battle as the Supreme Court rules to keep that controversial deportation policy known as Title 42 in place for now. Another drug shortage, this one over Ozempic and drugs like it, which is pitting diabetics who the drug was created for with the growing number of people who are taking it to lose weight and the growing market for adult toys but not the kind that you're thinking of. Get your mind out of the gutter. Good deep tease there, Jill. It is going to be a talker. You should definitely stick around to the end of the podcast. Okay, let's start with the House January 6th committee urging the Justice Department on Monday to bring criminal charges against former President Trump for the violent Capitol insurrection and his attempt to overturn the election. This all went down at the committee's 10th and final meeting of the year as it concluded its 18-month investigation. The committee made four criminal referrals of Trump to the Justice Department, including obstruction of an official proceeding, conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to make false statements, and incitement of an insurrection. Congresswoman Elaine Luria, a Democrat from Virginia, laid out Trump's actions as part of the presentation. She noted that the former president watched what was happening on TV, but did not call off his supporters for 187 minutes, despite calls to do so from his allies. She said, quote, President Trump lit the flame. He poured gasoline on the fire and sat by in the White House dining room for hours watching the fire burn. And today he still continues to fan those flames. That was his extreme dereliction of duty. Now, to be clear, this is mostly symbolic. The Justice Department is the one that has the ultimate decision here on whether or not to prosecute Trump or anyone else involved. But it is a decisive end to the hearings. Definitely, Jill. We'll be getting their final uh, report, several hundred pages worth of it uh, later this week. I think as soon as tomorrow, actually. A reminder here that the panel, the January 6th committee, was made up of seven Democrats and two Republicans, uh, two Republicans, incidentally, very critical of Trump. It'll dissolve on January 3rd with the new Republican-led House. But during its 18 months, it has conducted more than a thousand interviews, held 10 public hearings, some of them watched by tens of millions. It collected millions of documents, and feels it has accomplished its mission. On that makeup, by the way, the seven Democrats and two Republicans, it was originally envisioned uh, a year and a half ago as a bipartisan commission. But Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader at the time, the man actually who's seeking to become Speaker of the House now, had a couple of nominations rejected. 
they were rejected because uh, those congressmen had had positive words about what happened on January 6th. So uh, ultimately, the committee rejected them. Kevin McCarthy says, I'm out. I'm not getting involved here. It's a decision that has been questioned, but I'll get to more of that in a second. As far as Trump's reaction on Monday, he slammed the committee as thugs and scoundrels, uh, continues to say that he you know, had a right to dispute his 2020 loss and he did nothing wrong on January 6th. He continues to call it by his uh, favorite nickname, the unselect committee as opposed to select committee. Ooh, <laughs> I mean, look, thugs and scoundrels and the unselect committee. And then what was it? Uh, Ron DeSanctimonious for Ron DeSantis. Yeah. I feel like he's losing his touch a little bit he, here he, he, <laughs> with the negative nickname. He, he was known. He had little Marco back in the day. Um, what was the one for Jeb Bush? Low energy Jeb. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it is so juvenile. Yeah. It really is like like a middle school move. But uh, somehow it worked, right? Yeah. Back in the day, it worked. I, thugs and scoundrels and the unselect committee. I don't know if it, it's going to do it this time. Yeah, and, and the big thing here, Jill, you mentioned it. This criminal referral by the committee, while it's a big headline, it certainly got a lot of people's attention. It's one of the reasons we're talking about it on this podcast, has no real legal standing. Uh, but it is a forceful statement by the committee. It adds to pressure on the attorney general and this special counsel, Jack Smith, who's conducting the investigation uh, to potentially pr uh, put charges against former President Trump. Now, of course, the Justice Department can totally ignore this criminal referral. Uh, going back the last 18 months, the committee has made four criminal referrals so far. The committee, uh, the DOJ, I should say, has acted on two of them, including Steve Bannon's, uh, for not testifying. Uh, as I mentioned at the top, the committee is expected to release the final report later this week, and then will officially disband uh, on January 3rd. But this isn't the last we might hear about January 6th from Congress. Republicans are already signaling their plans to look into the January 6th committee as a way to undermine the panel's work and findings. Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader who's attempting to become the next speaker, says the GOP is planning its own inquiry next year, one aimed at discrediting the panel's findings. So, Mosh, let's get this straight. They want a committee <laughs> to investigate the committee and I guess we wonder why nothing ever gets Welcome done. to Congress, Jill. Welcome to Congress. So yes, <laughs> it is in fact a committee to investigate the committee. It's a coffee table book about coffee tables, Moshe. There is my <laughs> Seinfeld, Seinfeld reference. I, I've let it go for Seinfeld a while. Seinfeld was prescient on this. Uh, but yeah, ostensibly, this is really just makeup by Kevin McCarthy uh, for not partaking in the first committee, you know, being annoyed that a couple of his members, a couple of his nominations didn't make it onto the committee. He said, okay, I'm out. Uh, that was questioned, including by uh, loyalists of Trump saying, dude, you should have been a part of this committee to make sure it was more fair because it was very much stacked against the former president. Now, this committee to investigate the committee uh, we'll be looking into a number of things. It'll likely include Jim Jordan. You might recognize him. Typically doesn't wear a jacket with the rolled up sleeves. He's a uh, He's very vocal. Marjorie Taylor Greene from Georgia might also be participating here. She wants to investigate the treatment of January 6th prisoners, the people who uh, committed the insurrection. She thinks they're being mistreated. She wants to scrutinize Democrats and Nancy Pelosi's actions that day. So the theory here is that Democrats could have ensured the Capitol was better protected. So they want to make the committee to investigate the committee less about Trump and more about Democrats. Anyway, yes, this won't be the last you're hearing about all of this. Okay, on to our next story. Somehow it feels most like we are always on Elon Musk watch. Will here, won't he buy Twitter? Yes. Will he reinstate former President Trump? Yes. And now, will he actually resign as CEO following the results of his own Twitter poll asking users whether or not he should resign? 
So Musk, Twitter's new owner and CEO, posted an informal poll on the social media platform asking users if they think that he should step down as head of the company. More than 17 million people voted by the time that poll closed on Monday morning. And 57.5% said, sayonara, Elon Musk. He said, by the way, that he would abide by the results of the poll. But as of this podcast recording, he is still very much in place. So this leaves us with a lot of questions. Will he step down? And if he does, who will replace him? Yeah, we're recording this just before 9 p.m. Eastern on uh, Monday night. Uh, I'll try to stay up tonight, uh, Jill, before we put this out to see <laughs> to see if there's something la- uh, the, the latest here. Elon is flying back from Qatar, where he was watching the World Cup with Jared Kushner, among other folks, but that's a whole separate conversation. And Musk has said, I mean, you make the point here, there is no successor. Uh, he wrote in a tweet on Sunday that the question is not finding a CEO. The question is finding a CEO who can keep Twitter alive. <laughs> He's really making the case for the job there, Jill. Yeah, the bar is very high. Just don't run it into the ground. So Musk took over Twitter October 27th, if you can believe it. It's been less than eight weeks. Uh, but he has already hinted that he would not be involved in day-to-day running of the company for a long time. Uh, in court in November, Musk said, I expect to reduce my time at Twitter and find someone else to run Twitter over time. I was struck by this quote from a University of Michigan business professor, Jill, which uh, obviously your alma mater. Uh, Eric Gordon tells Axios, I don't think anyone else can run it. If you take that job, you're not the CEO of anything. You're Musk's minion. Hmm. And that's the notable thing here is that while Musk still owns the company, how much leeway would a CEO have? Um, it's sort of like, you know, working in the previous White House under Trump, where, you know, even if you were Secretary of Defense or an ambassador to something or, or whatever, you were always basically under the direction of, you know, the latest Trump tweet. And so in this case, uh, given Elon's uh, proclivity to tweet out just his random thoughts, uh, criticism of his colleagues, of people who work for him. Uh, What type of person wants to take on the CEO role? I should note, Jill, that uh, Musk insists that user activity has never been better. I don't find that surprising. There's a number of people who wrote into me saying, I renewed my Twitter account just so I could vote in that poll. Uh, But there have been a ton of missteps in terms of the advertisers that have left. Uh, Just generally, People, you know, it's an advertiser-supported social media network, and given all these moves and all of the um, questions about it, a lot of companies have basically said, uh, for at least the last month, we're out. Now, Musk eventually stepping down could have to do, actually, with his two other companies, Tesla and SpaceX. Since April, when Musk first bid on Twitter, Tesla's lost nearly half of its market value. He sold billions of dollars worth of Tesla shares this year to finance the Twitter takeover, And according to CNBC, he's also pulled in talent from both Tesla and SpaceX, including executives, engineers, and attorneys to help him over at Twitter. And that isn't the only issue for Tesla. There's also concern that there's weaker demand in China for Tesla vehicles, where Tesla's been offering discounts on cars. Yeah, Jill, Tesla last year was a $1.2 trillion company. Uh, Today, as of this recording, it's worth just over $400 So it's almost lost two-thirds of its value in this last year, and a lot of it attributed to uh, concern that uh, Elon is distracted. Uh, Shareholders are upset, including some very prominent ones, including some of his biggest shareholders, saying he needs to get back to that company. There's no working CEO at Tesla. We should add here the electric vehicle market has become very competitive. It's not just Tesla anymore, right? 
Ford's in it, GM's in it, the uh, Japanese manufacturers are in it. There are hundreds of now electric vehicles on the road and even more set to come out. And so the people who work within Tesla, the people who invest in Tesla are very worried about the future of that company without uh, somebody in charge uh, who's actually there day to day. At Tesla, there's no number two. It is all Elon. That's in contrast to his other company. You mentioned SpaceX, where he does actually lean heavily on the company's president. Her name is Gwyn Shotwell. Uh, she's remained largely out of the spotlight, but she keeps the rockets and government contracts flying, though the head of NASA earlier this month did ask her whether Musk's distraction at Twitter might affect their work with NASA. She reassured uh, him that everything's okay, but there is a domino effect here that we're seeing between you know his obsession with Twitter uh, and, by the way, as you mentioned, he sold billions uh, of Tesla stock. Jill, he sold $40 billion of Tesla stock partially to fund Twitter this year um, as he tries to keep it going and make it profitable. And that is one of the reasons that he has now dropped number two, uh, Mosh, on the world's richest people list. Tough times for Elon, only the world's second richest man. But <laughs> he, did have, he did have that number one title going for a while. Okay, time now for the speed read. This one from CNN. Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts on Monday put a temporary hold on the termination of a controversial immigration policy known as Title 42 that was set to end on December 21st, leaving it in place for now. The brief order from Roberts means the policy that allows officials to swiftly expel migrants at the U.S. border will stay in effect, at least until the justices decide the emergency application. The order does not necessarily reflect the final outcome of the case, but Roberts signaled that the court wants to act quickly. He has asked the Biden administration to respond by 5 p.m. Eastern today to an emergency appeal filed by a group of Republican-led states. The states had raced to the Supreme Court earlier in the day in an emergency bid to keep in place the Trump-era immigration policy that's set to go off the books tomorrow. A federal district court judge ruled last month that Title 42 was arbitrary and capricious. So there's a lot to watch here, Jill, day by day. You know, we uh, led the podcast on Monday uh, with the concern uh, on the Texas border, on the Arizona border, uh, cities bracing for this policy to end on Wednesday, uh, expecting in El Paso alone 5,000 migrants a day. Uh, that is more than double what they're currently seeing. So this policy has been in place for two and a half years. Uh, they've uh, been able to deport two and a half million people using this policy. It went into effect back in March 2020. Again, it was a public health policy, right, to stop the spread of COVID. And so it continued uh, into the Biden era. And Biden conveniently was able to use it because of the surge of people we were seeing on the border. Finally, the CDC says earlier this year, we actually don't need uh, Title 42 anymore because uh, we're, we're not as concerned about COVID spread in that way, which is then what led Republicans to say, whoa, yeah, actually, we do really need Title 42 here uh, because it's, it's been very successful as an immigration policy. Now, the Biden White House says it does have a backup plan in place to deal with uh, this policy ending. That said, it's now in the Supreme Court, right? The lower courts have ruled, yeah, there's no reason to continue this public health policy that goes against our asylum policy. Uh, come up with something else. Republican states have said, no, 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 we really like this policy, regardless of the pandemic. And so now the Supreme Court has to make a big decision here. The question for the Supreme Court is, will they say that this law is okay, despite what the lower courts say, or will they kick it back to the Republican states being like, actually, go to Congress, Congress can pass a new law here. You can't just take a public health law and apply it 
to other things just because it happens to be convenient and there's no other laws on the books, if that makes sense. Most, do we think that Biden is secretly breathing a sigh of relief here? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there was reporting via the Wall Street Journal and other media uh, sources that they were like desperately trying to come up with game plans to deal with the end of Title 42. I mean, the irony here, Jill, is that, you know, Biden was very critical. Many Democrats are very critical of this Trump policy. Then they get in office and they're like, actually, this is actually kind of effective for us. Let's leave it in for as long as we can. And so they did. Uh, until eventually this court ruled, the lower courts ruled, they had to get rid of it. Uh, And so uh, the issue here, Jill, ultimately is, and we talked about this yesterday, we don't have a real immigration policy in place, especially to deal with the surge of people on the border. As you see countries collapsing, like Venezuela uh, and other countries uh, just north of there in Central America. I mean, Venezuela has lost 7 million people have left that country in the past decade. Many of them in recent months and years coming our way. And so ultimately, how do we deal with that? How do we manage that? We don't have stuff in place. And honestly, the time for the Biden White House to blame Trump, you know, we're they're almost two years removed from Trump, but they continue to point the finger at, at Trump's policies asserting immigration. Ultimately, the responsibility lies on the current White House. The other irony as well is that Republicans have been saying that the pandemic is over um, and that we don't really need pandemic policies in place. So the fact that Title 42 is really a health policy, um, again, I think it is a bit ironic, but just points to the fact that we are lacking of any sort of immigration policy that makes any sense. Jill, I think that's a really good point. Uh, It it is an irony here that Republicans are uh, focused on defending a pandemic spread policy because it's convenient for immigration. But again, as you peel the layers back in Washington with why the parties support certain policies, this isn't the only one that you'll see in those regards where where you look at the policy, you look at who's supporting it, and you're kind of like, hmm. Okay, from the Washington Post, weight loss drugs are a milestone for the obese, but expose health inequity. Drugs that cause weight loss like Ozempic and Wegovy are seemingly everywhere these days, discussed on podcasts, speculated on by celeb followers, whispered about at dinner parties. How are they losing so much weight? (laughs) (laughs) And a shortage of the drugs has fueled further speculation about who is getting them as they've exploded in popularity. So these types of drugs, which are sold under the brand names Ozempic and Wegovy, you may have heard of another one, it's called Munjaro. They are designed for diabetes, but now used for obesity at higher doses. And the medications induce loss of between 15 to 22 percent of body weight on average. That is more than enough to significantly reduce cardiovascular and other health risks. But during the past year, soaring demand for the drugs has ignited a mad scramble, exposing some of the most persistent problems in the nation's healthcare system, including supply shortages, high costs and health care inequities. Tensions are surging as patients with diabetes and those with weight problems sometimes compete for the same medications, which are self-administered in weekly injections. Some doctors worry that the drugs, which might have to be taken for life, will overshadow the need for lifestyle changes involving diet and exercise. Yeah, that's a real concern here, Jill. This is a fascinating story. Uh, I've been uh, reading about it. It's really been popping in the last couple of months. And supplies ran short after Ozempic was touted publicly by celebrities and others on social media as an effective off-label substitute 
for the company's obesity treatment, Wegovy. So effectively, Wegovy is like the more comprehensive treatment, but other people are using Ozempic. Uh, Wegovy is a high-dose version of Ozempic, essentially, but it has gone into a shortage following production problems because of just the number of people asking for it. So diabetes advocates are incensed right now that some people are using a drug designed for them to lose a few pounds. They say treatment should be reserved for patients with blood sugar problems. Recently, Eli Lilly, actually, they produced Munjaro. They tightened the terms of its coupon to sharply limit out-of-pocket costs by requiring patients to attest they have diabetes if they want to use Munjaro. But then you have the obesity specialist side you know, versus the diabetic side who say that patients with serious weight problems have an urgent need for new medications and that they have fewer treatment options than those with diabetes. And these are the numbers. More than 40% of U.S. adults are obese. Another 30% are overweight, according to the federal government. At least 200 diseases, including heart conditions, cancer, kidney disease, are all linked to obesity. There was one quote I found from a doctor quoted in a Washington Post story that was out yesterday uh, who says that the competition among vulnerable patients should not be happening. Both groups need these medications. And Mosh, there's another drug shortage that a lot of parents are talking about, pain relievers for kids, including Tylenol, ibuprofen, Motrin, and Advil. Health experts say generic versions of these medications are also hard to find. And another drug that's in short supply, liquid amoxicillin, the surge in respiratory viruses causing cold-like symptoms, has driven the demand for over-the-counter medications, catching drug companies flat-footed. Yeah, the triple-demic that you mentioned at the uh, top of the uh, podcast, Jill, um, is real. And apparently these pharmaceutical companies did not anticipate it. Three of the largest manufacturers of amoxicillin, uh, Hikma Pharmaceuticals, Teva, and Sandoz, have all reported shortages of the antibiotic drug this year. They say they will catch up soon in the coming months. Obviously, uh, that's not a relief to parents who have been calling, and I've heard from them, and I and I know you have too, dozens of pharmacies driving a couple hours uh, to find drugs for their kids this season. It's just wild between formula shortages and now these drug shortages. I had a friend, um, a friend of mine, we were on the phone today and she's like, I'm out of children's Tylenol and I just went to two pharmacies and, and it's nowhere. And you know what? It's the one thing that kids could take to make themselves feel better. And Jill, it's notable, the White House says the supply is good. We have the same amount of supply as uh, normal years. The issue uh, is just there's a ton of demand with um, all these various things going around. From ABC News, a Los Angeles jury Monday found disgraced Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein guilty on three of seven counts, including rape. In his Los Angeles sexual assault trial, the jury found the 70-year-old former movie exec not guilty on one count, sexual battery by restraint, and it was hung on three counts. The jury will return Tuesday to hear arguments on special findings. Weinstein, as you're probably aware, is already serving a 23-year prison sentence, but that is in New York for criminal sexual assault and third-degree rape. He was accused by four women of assaulting them in hotels between 2004 and 2013. Yeah, so he's 70 years old, Jill. He's serving that 23-year prison sentence in New York, but there were more accusations about him in California, which is what led to this trial. So he now faces an additional 24 years in prison in California when he is sentenced. So he's currently appealing his conviction in New York. If that was thrown out for any reason, he would then be sent to jail in California. Uh, for anyone who's been watching this trial, one of the more notable uh, testimonies we saw was Jennifer Newsom, the a documentary filmmaker whose husband happens to be California Governor 
Gavin Newsom, she had really intense and emotional testimony of being raped by Weinstein in a hotel room back in 05. It was one of the trial's most dramatic moments, though, uh, as you were mentioning, Jill, he was convicted on some charges. Uh, they found him not guilty or uh, it was hung on multiple counts, including the charge by Jennifer Newsom. Turning now to some business news, this from the Wall Street Journal. Barnes & Noble store expansion leads big box real estate revival in 2023. The bookseller plans to grow its fleet by 30 stores next year. The latest sign that big box retailers are expanding again after years of shrinking their real estate footprints. Barnes & Noble had been contracting for more than a decade as it struggled to compete with Amazon and other online retailers and now has about 125 fewer stores than it did at its peak 14 years ago. But this year, Barnes & Noble is opening more stores than it is closing, including two Boston-area stores in locations formerly occupied by Amazon Books. Barnes & Noble stores have experienced robust customer demand coming out of the pandemic, as all booksellers benefited from people turning to books while stuck at home. The company also benefited from improvements that it made to stores while they were closed. Yeah, among those improvements, Jill, they've started to design some stores, according to the article, uh, to mimic more kind of mom-and-pop style small bookstores. So making these stores less about having as many books as humanly possible and much more of a uh, kind of authentic old-school experience. One interesting trend here, too, is book talk. Uh, the number of people who are learning about books or talking about books via TikTok uh, as a trend here. But who would have predicted that 2022 is the year we're seeing an expansion not only of Barnes & Noble replacing some Amazon bookstores, but uh, Ross is adding stores, TJ Maxx and Marshalls are adding stores, uh, Burlington is adding stores this year. I guess retail is back to a certain extent, though they are expanding much more cautiously than in the past when companies like Barnes & Noble opened way too many locations and sales could not keep up. Right now, they're researching potential locations extensively before signing leases, using sales and location tracking technology to pinpoint where new stores will be successful and what size footprint is really needed. But Mosh, uh, no word on whether Borders will be making a comeback. (laughs) (laughs) I love Borders, by the way. Borders is great. There was a time in the 90s, I remember like getting a Frappuccino at Borders. I remember living in the Chicago suburbs, growing up in the Chicago suburbs, and there was an area... Um, in Deerfield, if anyone's familiar with the North Shore of Chicago, where there was a Borders and a Barnes Noble across the street from each other. And I remember like having to get my books for high school. And like, if one didn't have it, call across the street. But like, I remember I had had very fond memories. I mean, I remember back in my teenage years, like taking my high school dates to like a Barnes and Noble date, like back back there in the 90s. Borders is, by the way, um, an Ann Arbor chain. So there was a great Borders at the University of Michigan, and I'm with you. I have so many great memories there, and I am happy uh, that actual bookstores are making a comeback. And it's funny because it's like I always, you always want to root for the little guy, and and of course Barnes and Noble and Borders put a lot of small mom and pop bookstores out of business, right? And then Amazon came, and and Borders and Barnes and Noble were almost like the shop around the corner. So it's funny who we root for, but I, I'm happy to see bookstores making a comeback. But now, Mosh, on to my favorite story of the day. This one from the Associated Press, not just for kids. Toymakers aim more products at grown-ups. Even as the pandemic's threat ebbs, Toymakers from Mattel's American Girl to Build-A-Bear Workshop see adults' interest in playthings as long-lasting, and they are creating new products, services, and websites aimed for the older group. This so-called kid-adult market is significant, Ages 18 and older represented 14% of toy industry sales. 
That's $5.7 billion for the 12 months ending in September of this year. Hold on here, Jill. AP is reporting that six, nearly $6 billion in toys are actually bought by adults Correct. to and, be and played with And I think the second adults. part of that sentence is what's okay. key. <laughs> um, so this number grew 19% since the 12 months prior. So to translate that, uh, over the last year, an extra billion dollars has been spent by adults buying toys. Correct. So starting early this year, Mattel's American Girl Cafe added more adult fare like beet and goat cheese salads and cocktails like Aperol spritzes and Bloody Marys after seeing adults show up without children. Last year, by the way, Build-A-Bear <laughs> launched a website called Bear Cave for the 18-year-old and over, highlighting items like stuffed rabbits holding a bottle of wine and basic fun. It took a high-tech spin on the traditional light bright toy from the 1960s and recreated it as wall art with thousands of pegs and 45 LED lights aimed at adults in time for the holidays, costing 99 bucks. I have to say, I think that is, is pretty cool, actually. Lego has been steadily increasing its products for adults since 2020, and it now has 100 sets, including intrepid space exploration and luxury cars. Yeah, if you've ever been um, in the Lego aisle of various stores, Jill, you know, you'll always see the age in the corner on the corner of the box. Like, you know, it's this Lego set is for three plus, five plus, 12 plus, 14 plus, And they have like 18 plus sets or 16 plus Lego sets, like geared towards adults. So that I feel like I've seen before. This other stuff feels brand new to me. The senior director at Lego, by the way, says that the pandemic certainly served as a catalyst for this trend as adults find themselves stuck at home with nothing else to do. But we do believe that this trend goes beyond the pandemic. So the AP reports the following, in addition to what you reported here. Executives say that what makes this time different is that consumers are really getting into the role-playing. Build-A-Bear says adults are actually taking their stuffed animals to bed. At American Girl, women get dressed up in outfits inspired by their favorite dolls and are bringing their dolls from their childhood to the cafes and sitting with them. Among the hottest items for the adults, Star Wars and Harry Potter-themed Lego sets, plush items like Squish Mallows, a whimsical stuffed creature from Jazzwares, and action figures from Marvel. Uh, McDonald's is also tapping into this group. They released adult Happy Meals back in October with nostalgic figurines. Uh, McDonald's said the company sold half its supply of collectibles in just the first four days of the promotion. I guess, uh, Jill, all of us are a little bit like Peter Pan. None of us want to grow up. So I'm a big puzzler. Does that is that considered a toy like this, or yes. is that more? Do you bring your puzzle to the American Girl Cafe and and drink an Aperol Spritz as you're doing it? Definitely not bringing puzzles anywhere except like the puzzle table in my house. But the truth is that I haven't even started my daughter on American dolls in part because they're so expensive, and I, I just don't want her to get hooked on them because then you take them to the cafe, you take them to the the hair salon there and stuff. I just I don't know. I, I feel like Barbies are a little bit more manageable. It's just so interesting. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't have thought about it. I mean, obviously, I'm not a toy executive, but that the the percentage of the market is just really amazing to me. That six billion dollars, um, fifteen percent of the toy market is uh, devoted to adults. Uh, it's just so interesting because at the same time, you have companies that are trying to age down, right? They want to get kids into their products, like the social media companies, et cetera. And in this case, you have the toy market being like, you know where we can expand? Adults. It's it's fascinating as you know, every single type of company out there is trying to increase its market share in any way it can. 
I guess it's a little bit like comfort food. And I was at my parents' house, actually, and I found my old doll, my old snuggles teddy bear, my gunned teddy bear that I used to sleep with when I was a kid. And I gave it to my daughter, but there's part of me that I do want it. Like, I want it back. And, and at first, when when I was reading this and I'm like, <laughs> okay, they're sleeping with these bears and these dolls. And then I thought, you know what? Maybe I would do that too. I I, I don't want to hate on it because I actually do feel like I, I get it. There is certainly nostalgia there. I, you know, when I felt it last is actually in the cereal aisle uh, of the grocery store. When, like I see like <laughs> uh, honeycomb or smacks or cookies for us, right? Like those are the memories, like certain foods, I think is is where I feel it, like nostalgia from like uh, childhood. Not to go off on such a tangent here, Seinfeld has the funniest bit about Cookie Crisp where he said, you know, we were getting away with all of these sugary cereals pretending that they were healthy until Cookie Crisp came along and it was like, okay, this is literally just cookies and milk. Um, <laughs> the jig is up. Speaking of nostalgia, Jill, let's get to On This Day, uh, December 20th, On This Day in History. Have a few uh, items for you. Let's start old school, as we uh, sometimes do. On this day in 1860, 162 years ago, South Carolina became the first state to secede from the Union. That followed Abraham Lincoln's election as president. Uh, Obviously, South Carolina secedes. Several other states would follow. The Civil War would soon follow after that. In modern times, I have some pop culture on this day for you. 31 years ago today, the Father of the Bride remake premiered in theaters uh, starring Steve Martin. Uh, Huge hit, right? And then there was yet another sequel recently during COVID. Love that movie. The actress who played Steve Martin's daughter, I don't remember her name, um, but I do believe that that was the, like, she wasn't an actress. She kind of just cold went into that audition and got it. Um, And she also kind of started the idea of, of, Fun sneakers. Remember, Steve Martin worked at a sneaker factory, and then she wore sneakers to her wedding. Jill, it really is an iconic movie that people like to reference. And speaking of like comfort foods and comfort stuffed animals, I know there's a lot of people who who like to go back and rewatch that movie. Um, oftentimes, there's a couple other movies. This probably is a movie you would rewatch less. Scream premiered in theaters 26 years ago today on this day in 1996. And I feel like there's been like at least a thousand sequels to Scream at this point. That is the opposite of comfort food. i would agree with that um back to comfort food though on this day 1946 frank capra's it's a wonderful life starring jimmy stewart and donna reed premiere so that is uh 76 years ago today and then one piece of musical history for you jill 36 years ago today december 20th 1986 the bangles hit number one with walk like an egyptian way oh way oh Walk like an Egyptian. It was a very baritone. It was a very baritone take on the song. <laughs> isn't it? Isn't that Walk the way like the song goes? Walk like an Egyptian. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I buy it. I buy it. <laughs> I, I'm starting but, to get a cold. But, this is all I can put yeah, out Yeah, no, right no. Now. But I, I blame your kids for bringing the cold in the house. And now it's totally messed up. Your, your remake of the Bengals, Walk Like an Egyptian. By the way, we're just looking up the lyrics to Walk Like an Egyptian. This appears to be one of those songs that people would choose <laughs> for a karaoke but is would be a terrible karaoke song. There's just so many words. That is such a great call, right? You get up there and you're like, wait a minute. They, All the old you, paintings on the tombs, they do the sand dance, don't you know? Yeah, no, they, this this is a challenging song, Bengals. 
Okay, Moshe, on that note, we want to thank everyone for listening to the Mo News Daily Podcast. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store so we can continue to grow. Yeah, those reviews make a difference. So appreciate all of you who are uh, leaving reviews for us on this holiday week. We're grateful for you. We're th- thankful that you're grateful of for us. Uh, don't forget to follow uh, our account over on Instagram, the Mo News Instagram account over at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H. I will see everyone back here, including you tomorrow, Jill. Go get some vitamin D. Make sure we you can you can make it through the week. Walk like an Egyptian. <laughs> <laughs> was that worse or any better? Um, I, that was even lower. It's all good. All right. <laughs> <laughs>